Well, uh, good morning, church, and uh, it is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, Super Bowl Sunday here at New Vintage is special for a variety of reasons. The biggest reason, of course, is Jesus. Uh, uh, the second reason is this has become a custom that, that uh, the single greatest predictor of the future, <laughs> known to humankind, uh, the oracle, as, as he's known around the world, um, also known as Tim Spivey, makes his um, world-renowned Super Bowl Prediction. Now, those of you who are thinking, oh, yeah, right, everybody predicts the Super Bowl. Um, my, my ability to predict this is very strange, actually, and it goes way beyond anything that I can attribute to knowledge or anything other than luck, really. Um, I picked seven out of eight winners. The year I missed was the year that the Seahawks threw the interception in the end zone, and if that pass had been completed, I would have picked it and the points on the money. Last year, I picked it exactly, points included, right on the money. My favorite year at New Vintage, which was almost divided the church, was a, a year when it was the year the Falcons were playing the uh, Patriots in the Super Bowl. And, of course, the Falcons went up, I don't know, 20-something points. And down the street from where I was, the youth ministry had taken up uh, an encampment and, and was, was ridiculing me. Uh, they, were, they were, oh, Oracle, hey, you're dumb, hey, you know, I hope you die or whatever, you know. <laughs> And I'm sitting down there, and it's halftime, and they're up by, uh, you know, I don't know, 25 points, something like that. And, uh, and everybody was laughing. And then, of course, just bit by bit, here come the Patriots. They come back and uh, win the game right on the Oracle's spread. And then it was funny. They were unavailable for comment. The teens were. Uh, they couldn't be found, and they couldn't. Uh, uh, and so I was, about to, I was going to make a prediction today. Uh, but... Uh, I am I'm officially announcing at least the temporary retirement of the Oracle from making his Super Bowl predictions. I know, I know, gasp, the whole, the whole earth now. I mean, Vegas is just, the line just changed right there, I'm sure. <laughs> because I've sat here, I, I have gone, okay, what's it going to be, what's it going to be? And I have absolutely no idea, none, none. Now, Tim Spivey's going to make one, but not the Oracle. The Oracle, at this moment in time, is retiring uh, because you want to leave on top when you pick the game and the points. Uh, you want to win the Super Bowl, so to speak, and then retire. Uh, but Tim Spivey is, is uh, I've been leaning Chiefs by six all week, but I think I'm going to lean, actually, because of that, I'm actually going to go last minute the other way. And I'm going to go 49ers by four. That's where I'm going to go. Now, that's Tim Spivey. That's not the Oracle. So if it's wrong, that was me. Okay, that was not the, the Oracle. Um, so I, I wish it weren't so. Uh, most of the people I know that are Chiefs fans are actually far better people than the people I know that are 49ers fans. <laughs> so uh, uh, with all that in mind, uh, we're going to start a, a new sermon series today in Acts chapter 1. You can follow along with us on the, on the Version Bible app if you would like. Um, one thing on Grand, uh, DJ mentioned that uh, we'll, we'll see steel going up soon on the corner building. That, that soon means tomorrow. Uh, and steel doesn't mean you're going to see like a beam, like, like the whole outer structure of that building is supposed to go up over the next week, okay? So it's supposed to fly up there. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I can't make any guarantees, but uh, as of last Thursday afternoon, and we've got apparently a pretty stable week weather-wise, so uh, that stuff should start flying up. So on your way home today, go swing by Grand, see what it looks like now, and then come back next Sunday on your way in and see what it looks like or, or do it on your way out, and you'll be able to see some of the progress uh, that's going on. And I left a very, very important, one second. You know what this is? Yeah. 
350 million of these suckers have been sold. 350 million. There are 43 and a half quintillion combinations. 43 and a half quintillion ways you can twist this and turn this. I didn't know we have like Rubik's Cube royalty. Antonio Kinger can solve this thing in like less than a minute. So foo, 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 foo. I know, pretty crazy, huh? One of the best selling toys of all time. In fact, only the Barbie doll has outsold it. More than a billion Barbies. 350 million plus of these little guys. So I thought about this and in, in the way that we look at trying to change things. You ever, you ever think about the world this way that God designs this world. It's all in perfect alignment. It's all just ready to go. Man, woman, created in the image of God, given dominion over all the earth, naked and unashamed. Job is just to be fruitful, multiply, and eat. It's a good existence. It's all they got to do. But then there's one turn, and with that, nothing fits anymore. And from that point on, humankind tries to do its best to try to solve the puzzle. We try to change the world. We try to get it back to the way that it looked at the beginning. I would have a hard time just solving that. I did one turn, and I started to turn it the wrong way. But we try to do it on our own. We try to make sure that, uh, I mean, it's not like we don't mean well, and we do. It's just that we're not capable of doing it. We're the ones that messed it up in the first place. We had no part in creating it. We had no part in making it look pretty. But we messed it up. And so now nothing works. The harder we try, the more we turn it, the more confused it becomes. Now, we think we're good. Right? You remember ever picking one of these up for the first time? Your friend couldn't solve it. You knew they were smarter than you, but something inside you said, I can do it. So you picked it up, and you kept messing around with it. And it took a while before people tried to go, oh, there's an algorithmic way that you can do this and just turn, 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 left, right, left, right, left, right, 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 left, 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 whatever. And then all of a sudden, boom, there it is. I think there are people that think that that's how the world works, that the world we live in is broken as it is and as fallible as it is, that that's what we need to do. Uh, you put in this social policy, that social policy, everything will be better. Uh, you get this person elected, it'll all just be fine. You know, if we just did things the way that that person did it or that country does it, everything would be so much better. Uh, and then take it to the personal level. You know what? Uh, if I could just do this, then everything would be great. If I could just fix that, if I could just change that. The problem is, <laughs> we can't change things anyway. We lack the knowledge of what to do. We often lack the ability to do it. And even if we can figure out that and the ability, we can't sustain it for lack of discipline and power. I mean, we can barely turn down the Girl Scouts who want to sell us cookies when we're on a diet. How do we think we're going to have the sustained discipline to keep the world intact? Why would we think that? And then where is our sense of what the world ought to look like come from? I mean, who gave us that? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know the way the world's supposed to be? Other than having some point of reference. So, the more you twist it improperly, the more confused it becomes, the more difficult it is to set right. The same person trying to solve it is often the same person that messed it up in the first place. So, we invented a new system. Peeling off the stickers. <laughs> if I can't get that thing to fit the way I want it to, then I'll just start peeling the stickers off one by one, peel off one side, and make it to where it all 
lines up, but we all know that we didn't really solve it, and it looks stupid, and it really ultimately ruins the cube because the stickers never go back on the same way. You know, video games, we used to try to find the cheat codes so you could get by the whole journey from the beginning to the end and just fight the last battle. That never changes. Human beings have an unwavering commitment to their own knowledge and an unlimited view of what we're capable of. And part of that, I think, is put there by God. I think there's that sense of, of adventure. I think there's that, um, that, uh, those moments where we recognize that we are capable of some pretty great things. But when we take that approach to trying to solve the world problem, the great problems of the world, we have neither the expertise to do it, the discipline to do it, the frame of reference to do it, or the knowledge of what it might look like if it happened. So I want to take us for the next 10 weeks, we're going to go through the book of Acts, uh, at least the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts, and then we'll see where we go from there. But the book of Acts is essentially volume two of the Gospel of Luke, written by the same person to the same person. Uh, The book of Acts is the second longest book in the New Testament. Only the Gospel of Luke is longer in total word count. If you've played another game, Bible trivia, you would know that. I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have said Acts was the longest. It's Luke. So Luke is the most well-written or or most uh, prolific author of the New Testament. But Acts is really about God using the church to set the world right again. To begin the the prospect of twisting all of this back together in the way that it was supposed to be from the beginning. The restoration of all things. Following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's part two of the Gospel of Luke. Again, written uh, to Theophilus. It's a good Greek name. Theo, God. Philus, anybody want to take a guess, like Philadelphia? Come on, come on, we got Super Bowl today, come on, let's get some energy, people. Love, love. Theophilus. And so Luke's trying to give him this account of what Jesus did and what took place when the Holy Spirit broke forth in the people of God. The title of the book It's called, in classic terms, the Acts of the Apostles, shortened to Acts by the church over the years. It can be a bit deceiving, making us think that it's really a story of all the things that the apostles went and did. That's really not, so the Acts of the Holy Spirit would be far more appropriate. It's really about what happens when God's people surrender themselves to the reign and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that when that moment comes, they are capable of doing things that they otherwise would not be able to do. So in the passage that we're going to read together this morning, the church is told, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, you guys are going to do these great things, so the first thing I want you to do is wait. Wait. You want to change the world, wait. That sounds like one of those stoplights now that says, wait. Bossy, bossy lights now. Wait. In Acts 4, again, They're sitting there trembling. They're terrified, wondering what to do, wondering what they're supposed to do next. And they wait. They wait because in order for them to have the kind of courage that is beyond what humans enduring persecution can muster on their own, they must wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit to arrive. 
to fall on them in a unique and a fresh way. And so the Spirit answers, and then there in Acts 4, they get up, and they go, and they speak boldly. There are those who, like Simon the sorcerer, we'll meet him a bit down the road, who recognize the power of the Holy Spirit so much so that he tries to buy it. How much do you want for some of that, he asks. How do I buy some of that? Do I go to 7-Eleven? Can I get it on Amazon? I want that. Whatever it is that you guys are doing, whatever it is that's causing you guys to be capable of these things, help me find it. Help me get a hold of it somehow, and I'll pay any price. There are those like Peter who want to hang on to it. He wants to keep it just to his own people group, his own fellow Jews. He wants to preserve the Spirit's power for members of his own group, but the Spirit's power can't be contained. The reason it was that the Holy Spirit uh, empowered the early church was to go forth to the ends of the earth, as we'll read today. So it can't be contained. It must find its way to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. Because as the prophet Joel had prophesied earlier, God is pouring out His Spirit on all people. So we learn in the book of Acts, Jesus hasn't abandoned His followers at all, and He never did. He is with us as much as ever, even until the end of the age, in the Holy Spirit's presence. And the ministry of Jesus doesn't end with His ascension, it continues His ministry as the Holy Spirit dwells in and among the believers. So here's Acts in a nutshell, in one sentence. We can move on to the next series after this. No, I'm kidding. Only the power of God can change the world. That's, that's Acts in a nutshell. Every time they try, just through sheer human willpower to do anything, they fail. Any time that they were willing to wait and let the Holy Spirit come to them and, and breathe on them, then they're capable of unusually powerful things. I'm talking about real-world change, not a few tinkers here and there. I mean, the kind of, of catalytic movement that most people would like to see, the kind of fundamental change everybody seems to be so hungry and thirsty for these days, the kind where miracles happen with regularity and the people of an entire area are transformed so totally that nobody is left unimpacted. That kind of change. So in Acts 1, we're going to start, read verses 1 to 5 together. Here's how it opens. One of the great stories ever written. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, once he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The world won't change without the waiting. You can't change the world to a utopia free from what ails it. Of course, we can make small improvements. We can and should try our best. We can and should be nice to the earth as best we can. We, we should vote for people who espouse policies we believe would please God. We should view ourselves as missionaries and seek opportunities to share the good news with people who need it. We should strive to be more compassionate. We should strive to be more just. We should use our heads. We should be nice to people. We should do those things. And how long will that last? How long will that last? I mean, really, how good have we really been at that? 
Where do we even get our sense of what we ought to do? Where do we get the will to do it when we could hardly pass up on dessert? However, you know, I guess fundamental change really has only happened one time. One time in the history of the world has, the, has anything happened that actually fundamentally changed the world. One time. Easter Sunday. That was it. I mean, presidents come and go, rulers come and go, governments come and go, social movements come and go. What hasn't come and gone yet in 2,000 years is Christianity. The church has been the movement of movements. The church has been that group of people who have changed the world. Why? Because God doesn't come and go. He continues to work in and through his people. Acts makes a claim at the beginning, a very startling claim to those of us good individuals here in the 21st century, that we can't change the world without the power of God, that only God's power can change the world, and with it, we can truly change the world. Without it, we're essentially like babies playing with a Rubik's Cube, just making it less and less fixed with every turn. So if you want to change the world, start by waiting. Waiting for what? For the Spirit's power. He is, as Jesus says, the gift that he promised. The Holy Spirit is the one who is altogether powerful, so powerful, so beautiful, so overwhelming in his grandeur that he raised Christ from the dead. And what Acts is bold enough to say is that spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. And not just in you as a person, but in the people of God. And so the church becomes this catalytic movement of taking the... The, the compassion of God, the reign of God, the kingdom of God around the world. And as they do, in every place that they stop, things are never quite the same. So, this gift that he promised, the Holy Spirit. Okay, who's he? He's so great that when Jesus is talking about him in the Gospel of John, he says, it's good that I should go, for until I go, or if I stay, he can't come to you. The Holy Spirit can't come to you. He's saying it's better to have the gift of the Holy Spirit within you than to have Jesus walking alongside you. I mean, that's, that's an amazing statement made by Jesus himself. So let's continue. Acts 1, 6 to 11. What happens next? So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Listen to the language. You're going to set us free and restore our kingdom. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So it starts with wait, and then it goes to go. Wait, now the Holy Spirit's here. What are you staring at? Go. But there's definitely this sense of this is it. This is the moment. God doesn't seem to have a fallback plan in Acts. There's no plan B. Jesus said, Peter, 
You're the rock. On this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That's the, what God chose as his vehicle. Now, people can look and say, and talk about how the church has fallen short. They can talk about uh, how we haven't realized our potential, so to speak, or whatever. But it's very hard, if you're reading the scriptures, to come up with an alternative to the church for God's plan for the world. And so Acts is really a book, and this is a series, about the church. About the fact that we as the church, gathered into local outposts of the kingdom of God, are God's plan A for the world. That he has no plan B. And that God is our plan A, and we shouldn't have a plan B. That's what makes a Christian. A Christian is somebody that says, God is plan A, I got no plan B. He's everything. That's it. Full stop. The church then, for God, is his plan A. It's really then a series about who we think Jesus is and who we really want to become. The church is that community of people who have made God their plan A and renounced all other possible plan Bs. We don't have fallback plans if God doesn't work out. To become Christians means to trust God with everything, including your life on this earth and your eternity. There is no room to make God a, like a supplemental insurance plan. Okay, I'll, 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 I'm counting on him in case my normal resources run out. That's not what God is. It's not who God is. That's not what being a Christian is about. Being a Christian is being full of faith to the point that you recognize that if God isn't with me, I have no chance. He's, he's, he's more than insurance. He's the way that you live your life. And so when you're sick, yes, he's there. When you're in an accident, he's there. He's also there when you're healthy. He's everything. So I don't hedge my bets. I don't I don't go around saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop in a little bit of church when it, it feels like I need a little extra boost in my step. It's not that. He's not a vitamin supplement. He's everything. And so you get a group of people that are that committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you pour the Holy Spirit, the gasoline of the Holy Spirit over that group, and, and then let that baptism of fire that is spoken of happen, and it's kaboom. And that's how you change the world. You can't do it with do-goodism. You can't do it with, with these kind of, uh, you know, limp, oh, you know, yeah, we'll just, we'll just do this and, and we'll elect this guy and everything will be fine or whatever. That, that's so weak. We have, we have not done it yet. And yet God's never failed anybody yet. So Acts is... Hopefully, going to be a renaissance for all of us. It'll be a time to turn back toward God if we've turned away. It'll be a time to put him back in his proper place if he's been dethroned. Jesus identifies with the church so closely in the book of Acts that he meets Paul on the Damascus Road, and he asks, why do you persecute me when Saul persecutes the church? That's no surprise. Luke had already used that kind of language. Uh, to describe Christ's relationship to the church. In Luke uh, 10, 16, he says, Jesus says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So there's this identification with each other. Jesus, the church, and the one who sent Jesus. So Acts does something extremely radical by putting, get this, the church, not the individual, at the center of God's plan. Don't miss that. And if it bothers you, it's not my plan. It's his plan. 
not the individual. Church is not, the kingdom is not a matter of consumer-based individual decisions. The church is what he chose. The gathering, the group of people, those kingdom outposts all over the world, those are his plan. Now, the last 200 years of Western civilization has really been the story of the construction of the modern self or the modern individual. Culture has gone to great lengths to train us in a way of thinking about ourselves and others that I would argue has done us great harm because we tend to think of ourselves as rational, autonomous, possessing rights, and able to do anything if we just put our minds to it. That's the problem. If we, if we acknowledge that we have all those things, then have we made such a meal out of everything? How, how do we take what was this and mess it up so badly that nobody, even the greatest geniuses among us, couldn't solve it? And with every turn, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. No, but this time we'll get it. This time we're going to get it because we keep getting better every day. Do we really? Can we make that case? I mean, yeah, in certain ways, you know, people are living a little bit longer, whatever. The Tower of Babel and stories like it warn us against trying to build our own towers to the heavens. It's not how we are built. It's not how this world is built. So what Acts reminds us of is that what God is doing in this world and how he's trying to restore all things is done through the church, through his chosen community in the church. In his book, Why We Love the Church, Kevin DeYoung writes this. It's there in your YouVersion Bible app too. He says, church isn't boring. Listen to what he says. Church isn't boring because we're not showing enough film clips or because we play an organ instead of a guitar. It's boring because we neuter it of its importance. At the end of my life, I want my friends and family to remember me as someone who battled for the gospel, who tried to mortify sin in my life, who fought hard for life, and who contended uh, earnestly for the faith. Not just as a nice guy who occasionally noticed the splendor of the mountains God created, while otherwise just trying to enjoy myself, manage my schedule, and work on my short game. That's exactly right. I mean, we can, we can choose. If you're not interested in changing the world, if you're not interested in any of that kind of stuff, if you're not interested in trying to become a better person and all that, and even that, becoming a better person is not really the aim of the kingdom of God. That's kind of moralism. It's not, it's not really what's going on. That the reason that God saved us wasn't just so that we would have a nice, happy life. It's be part of a bigger plan of what he's doing to bring renewal to every person everywhere in the world. So when I decide that I'm going to go ahead and and, and, and do my individualism thing. Uh, a theologian by the name of Phil Kennison uh, said, it's like developing the body of Christ, developing lazy eye, uh, where, where one eye just kind of takes off and does its own thing. Uh, it makes it look strange, and it makes the whole, gives the whole body a bit of vertigo. And he says, now imagine everybody does that. Every part of the body begins to do that. Imagine a symphony where everybody decides to play their own piece of music in their own instrument at the own, their own volume or everything, as opposed to playing off the same script, the same piece of mu uh, music, and everybody playing just as they should and making something beautiful, which is a much clearer picture of what God uh, has in mind. Okay, so another, another thing we pull out of Acts 1, when he says go, we go. Uh, one of the great mysteries of the world that, you know, for all of us that are going to change the world uh, in our human way of doing it, we have not mastered this one still the four-way stop sign. 
when everybody shows up to a four-way stop sign, and here you are. And let's just say everybody shows up at the same time. Now, test me on this when you leave church. You can Google how, what to do at a four-way stop sign. And here's what they say. If you get there, yield to the car on the right. Do you see a problem with that? If everybody's there at the same time, everybody's got a car on the right, which means we all yield at the same time, which means we don't go anywhere. That makes no sense. So there's one over here at Juniper 9th that I drive past almost every morning. And I come down there, and everybody, nobody has a clue what to do. And so what ends up happening is four cars pull up. There's a line coming from each direction of cars. And in theory, the one who triggers it is whoever goes first. But when you have nobody willing to go, then you can't get on with it, right? So, so we're going to change the world, but we can't figure out how to do a four-way stop sign in the society we're in, okay? You're sitting there, and, and so some people will say it's counterclockwise, or you yield to the car on the right, or you do this, or you do that. Some people say legitimate driving sites say, if you look it up, counterclockwise and clockwise. They'll say both. Some will say clockwise, some will say counterclockwise. The one you hear the most frequently, yield to the car on the right. Okay, but if nobody goes, then what? Then you're stuck. And you have the awkward, everybody tries to take off at the same time. No, wait. No, you go. No, you go. No, you go. You know, and you just stay frozen. Nobody goes. So in Acts, what he says is first, everybody wait. Then he says, everybody go. Once that match is struck and it goes, go. So usually what makes things happen is there's some car at the intersection, some or at the stop sign rather, that it has the guts to go. And when they go, that's supposed to set other things in motion. So they go. And one after another. Now what will get you in trouble is if everybody goes and you don't. But many churches have created a a situation now where it's okay for somebody to just sit in the car and clog the intersection. See, the gospel is something designed for every single believer. It's not just for the clergy. It's not just for people who've been in the church a long time. It's designed for everybody. So one of the things you see throughout the book of Acts are newbies. I mean, people just, I mean, still wet from their baptism, still getting out, and they just go off and start doing things. They start going and preaching the gospel wherever they go. Like the Samaritan woman at the well we talked about last weekend, it just keeps going. So it's wait, and then it's go. Wait, go. And it's supposed to be everybody. One of my favorite things ever said about football, football's 22 players in desperate need of rest being watched by thousands in desperate need of exercise. (laughs) Okay, sometimes the church is the same. It's the same. Now you got that nucleus of 5%, 10% of the church doing everything in desperate need of rest, and then you got a bunch of other people, flabby, watching from the sidelines, popping nachos and stuff in their mouth, thinking their job is to watch the game and be critical of the quarterback missing a pass or the wide receiver dropping a ball. That's not the job of a Christian. It's wait, and then it's go. It's wait, and then it's go. It's wait, and then it's go. That's the rhythm of the church. We wait for the Holy Spirit to guide, and then we go. 
We wait and then we go. We wait and then we go. Now, God is actually as important as we say he is, then so are his plans. So the first question of all of life is, who do I say he is? And the second is like it. If that's who he is, then who am I? I mean, how can we go about saying that Jesus is the most important thing in our lives if we aren't willing to commit to his will? If what he holds to be most important in the world is not most important to us? We are those who say and live the statement, not my will, but yours be done. So when we wait and go, wait and go, wait and go, guess what? Hell doesn't stand a chance. Hell doesn't stand a chance. That's the theology of the book of Acts. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this to Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church empowered by the Holy Spirit. There is no change so difficult, either in our communal life together or in your personal life, that is so difficult that the Holy Spirit can't overcome it. It's everywhere in the Bible. It is. It's everywhere in the Bible. Now, one of the things that people don't know about this, a lot of people don't at least, this was never supposed to be a game. It was not meant to be a game. Old man Rubik, who created this, he was an architecture professor. And uh, it's said, wrongly, that the reason he did this was to teach his students about 3D objects. It's not why. He did it so that he could teach his students about building something that could be rotated like this, where the pieces of it could be moved without the whole thing falling apart. It's already messed up, and I don't even know if I could solve that. Probably could. <laughs> I've done it now. There we go. Yay. Two turns, three turns. I'm, I'm, I'm brilliant, right? <laughs> that, that's kind of how we are. We, you know, we, we make one turn, and we think, oh, wow. Yay, me. I'm awesome. You know? But, you know, when it comes down to the, the actual real world, if you picture a world like this, you, you can't peel the stickers off, y'all. Can't do that. Not just because it's cheating, it doesn't work. Ultimately, it ruins the cube. But God gives us this book, this beautiful book, Acts, as a way of helping us understand how everything moves around and how things ought to be moved without the whole thing falling apart. Where the thing actually starts to get better. But it won't get better as long as everybody's out serving themselves. It's never going to get better as long as I'm convinced that if I just try harder, if we just read more, if we just discover this or elect that person or whatever, then everything will be solved. The world changes when the only one who can change the world takes over. And when his power breaks out, then you start seeing things that are uncommon. Erno Rubik, that was his name, worked at the Department of Interior Design at the Academy of Applied Arts and Crafts in Budapest. What an impressive title. Before him, we came up with a way of confusing everything. It looks like, you know, 
Nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do that instead. No, I, I know that, that this is what everybody, what the Bible says or whatever, but I'm going to do this anyway. I know the Bible says I ought to raise my kids this way, but Oprah says I should raise them that way. You know what? I know that God tells me I ought to put him first, and he definitely is super, super important. I mean, he's in my top ten list for sure, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and so, and, and there's another turn. And then it's, and then the problem is we wake up one day and we realize we absolutely torched this thing, and it's a complete, utter mess. And then you know what we do? God, how could you let my life get this way? How could you do this to me? If you love me, how could this happen? And God looks down and goes, if you love me, how could you let that happen? Listen to me, child. Listen to me. And so, this is a series about listening. About acknowledging the power of God. And being willing to, be, to submit ourselves to it. Okay? And next week... Pentecost, as it's known. Our man Peter, the rock. The last sermon he preached didn't go so well. Well, it wasn't much of a sermon. He denied he knew Jesus. But what you see is when the Holy Spirit falls on him, he's a different man. (laughs) This once cowardly person, when the little girl goes, hey, he knew Jesus, I don't know him. He comes now, he's standing up in front of thousands saying, you know what? Let me walk you through human history. And you know what he says? He goes, every stinking thing you guys have done, turn, turn, turn the wrong way. Turn the wrong way. And now you've really done it. You've really done it now because the one that God sent to make all things new, you nailed him to the cross. He says it. He stands up in front of thousands and says, it was you. It was us. We nailed the solve to the cross. And they go, not to go throw rocks at him, that says they're cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart, and they go, what must I do? What do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. Your children, your children's children, your children's 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 children. I'm, I'm paraphrasing now. And those who are far off. And that becomes the refrain all the way through. So if you're here today and that's your question, I don't know, what do I do? My life looks worse than that, more confused than that. And what should I do? The answer remains the same. Repent and be baptized. And that's the beginning. What are the turns? Start going in the right direction. I want to invite the band to, to go ahead and come on back up. We're going to sing one final song. But I want to offer a prayer for you, every, every person in this room. And I hope you'll join us next week as we keep going here in the series. But uh, I'm going to make the assumption that somebody in here has an imperfect life. All right? And I'm going to ask... Heavenly, our Heavenly Father, uh, that, that He would send the power of the Holy Spirit to direct you this week. 